All right, good morning. Uh, praise God once again, we can come to worship Him. And even though I say this every week, uh, I don't uh, take it for granted that it is a privilege, you know, to be able to share God's Word here. Uh, privilege primarily because I get to study God's Word first and repent and then to share with you. You know, as Christians, we are no, known as New Covenant Believers. Now, what does that mean? Okay, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you will shed God's love abundantly in our hearts. They will see Christ lifted up and you glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Tao Chen, he works in an international bank and his department oversees the bank's entire Southeast, Southeast Asian operations. So there are more, more than 200 over people reporting to him. He had a high-flying career, a well-paid job. At the same time, he was pursuing the high life, clubbing, partying, and he says he would sleep with three or four men a day. Seven years old, he said, I realized that I was attracted to the same sex. Even though I grew up in church, I didn't know who I could share with. I was ashamed, afraid to be stigmatized, and so I kept quiet. He grew up in a Christian family, served in church, even became a cell group leader, organized a few church retreats. And by his 20s, he said, I walked away from church. I was stumbled by some Christians. I felt that my faith and God's word was no longer relevant. And so when he turned away from God, he went fully into the gay lifestyle. He says, one day, to seek higher highs, I will sleep with three or four men. But every time, invariably, I feel empty and un." fulfilled. I feel this emptiness and I don't know why. And this went on for several years. I got more and more disgusted with myself because every time I looked at myself, I realized I was addicted to sex. I realized that my appetites were way beyond the appetites of normal people. You know, friends, when you hear this story, how do you feel? It's like, oh, why this person like that, you know? Oh, no, I'm having a good Sunday. Why do you spoil it with this story? You know, we realize we are all sinners living in a broken world. He has same-sex attraction issue. I have opposite-sex attraction issue. Single have singles issue. Married has married issue. A friend of mine who is in charge of a family life in a mega church, he says, my church's problem with sex is that singles have too much sex while the married has too little. Or they go out and have premarital and have extramarital affairs. Now I think, of course, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but you know, this area of sexuality is just one area, one expression of our sin nature. We find different ways to fill this void in our hearts, like what Tao Chen said. You know, he couldn't fill the void in his heart. Perhaps we use our careers, families, children, love, money accolades, achievements, to fill this void, but we cannot. And that is why St. Augustine, perhaps the greatest theologian of the church, said that in each of us, there is a God-shaped vacuum that nothing but Christ can fill. What is it they were using to fill this void? How do we fill this void? Well, that is to know Christ, to know what God is doing and align our lives to that. And so let me ask you, what is God doing? I think by now, I hope you remember, because we've been talking about it the last four months, okay? 
And maybe you hear until CN, you know, the greatest love story ever told. And if you feel CN, that's good because that means we have said it enough. God is only doing one thing and that is from creation to Christ and to His second coming is unveiling His redemptive plan. So we started the year in January with the events of creation. In the fall, we saw that God promised the seed of the woman who would come and save us. In Cain and Abel, we saw the to, to come close to God, we need to offer a sacrifice with faith. And Jesus is the one with the perfect faith and He was the perfect sacrifice. Because while the blood of Abel cries out vengeance, the blood of Christ, the greater Abel, cries out forgiveness. In Noah's Ark, we saw that salvation was exclusive. It's God's way or no way. Because morality is not relative. It's not based on your standards or my standards. It's based on who God is and God is perfect. And then we saw that the seed of the woman will come through the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then how did this family become a nation in the people and the land? We see that the Saviour will be like the Passover lamb for His blood will protect us from the wrath of God. Not only that, He will take our sins onto Himself like the bronze serpent raised up in the wilderness. Not only will His blood protect us, but He Himself will take on our sins. And God desires to draw close to us, not just through the tabernacle or a temple, but a person, Emmanuel. It, that, that blows our mind that God will become man to die for us and to bear our sins. In the story of Joshua leading the people in the promised land, the ultimate promised land, of course, is the new heaven and earth. This month, we started the king and the prophets. In God's covenant with David, we see the this seed of the woman. The descendant of Abraham will be the son of David. The Savior will be a son of David and he will be the king of Israel. And God's love for us is like Hosea's love for his wife, a prostitute, pursuing her with unchanging love. Next week, we will end with Jonah. God's love is not just for his people, but to the Gentiles. He challenged the Israelites to share this message to all nations. And today we'll look at the new covenant. What is this new covenant? From this new covenant promises a new covenant commandment, we'll see two ways we can realign our lives to God's redemptive story. God has written our lives into His story. How can we respond to that? So from the new covenant, we'll look at the new covenant promises and secondly, the new covenant commandment. We begin in Jeremiah 31. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied before 586 BC when Judah was destroyed and taken to Babylon. God warned them because of idolatry, the Babylonians will come, destroy Jerusalem and you'll be taken captive in Babylon. The false prophet said, no, this won't happen. We will have peace. But Jeremiah says it will. However, God will make a new covenant with us. And so what is this new covenant? It's about the blessings to all nations. The promises of the new covenant, firstly, is to share your life. Share your life story. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Remember, by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel has been destroyed. Only the southern Judah exists. But God says, I'm going to renew this covenant with all 12 tribes of Israel. It is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although 
I was a husband to them. Referring to the old covenant he made through Moses about the promised land. God says they broke the covenant, but I will renew this covenant. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Unlike the Mosaic covenant, the law of God is not written on tab- stones of ta- tablets, tablets of stones, but rather on our hearts. They, they will not teach each other. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Why? Because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this is not saying they will not teach the law or you no need to tell people to come and believe God. He's saying that everyone have direct access to God. From the least to the greatest. Why? Because their sins are forgiven. Now, how is this possible? How is this possible that we can obey God's commandments, that we can have direct access to a holy God? In the book of Ezekiel, God calls this prophet to remind them of this new covenant. Now, Ezekiel have happened several decades after Jeremiah. At this time, they are already living in Babylon. And God reminds them through Ezekiel that He will bring them back to Israel. It says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, bring you into your own land, bring you home. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Remember, because of idolatry, they were taken captive to Babylon and God says, I'm going to cleanse you from all this. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. What does it mean? I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Say, because the Holy Spirit will indwell in us and therefore we are able to obey God. You know, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes down the people of God You know, He does what He wants and He leaves. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in believers. And hence, this new covenant era is also known as the era of the Holy Spirit or the church age. Because the church began in Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on His people. So because of the indwelling of the Spirit, we are able to obey God, to have direct access to God. How is this possible? Through Jesus. That is why when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He says, take drink this cup for the blood. This is the blood of the covenant. Which covenant? The new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why did Jesus say these words? He didn't just pluck them out of the air. These are the promises of the new covenant. You see, the Passover was instituted when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt. It is no coincidence that it is during a Passover meal that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to lead His people out of the bondage and slavery of sin and death. So what is the new covenant? It is the promise of new life. The Holy Spirit indwells in us, our sins are cleansed and we have direct access to God, which means you have that new life, I have that new life. That is why the Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us, having concluded this. What did he conclude? That one, Christ died for all, therefore all died. 
He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. That we are to live for Christ because Christ died for us. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't judge each other by our external appearances, but what is inside. That we are born again believers, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. We are a new creation because of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at this new covenant, we say we are new covenant believers. What does that mean? That means we have the new life. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have direct access to God. The question is, can we share our lives with others? Do we, are we able to influence the people around us? Are we too much like the world? Owen Luther says this, we as Christians have settled down to a comfortable kind of Christianity that demands very little and therefore in turn makes very little difference in the wider culture. That when the world takes a step in our direction, we embrace it without a twinge of conscience. But a church that has made its peace with the world is incapable of changing it. John would say that friendship with the world is enmity with God. In the West, opinion polls after opinion polls reveals that there's very little difference between the church and the culture. Talks about divorce rates, porn addiction, pursuing material things and material comforts, our source of hope when we are struggling. There's very little difference between the church and the world, which means that the sins of the world are the sins of the church. The church, the sins of the church are the church, sins of the world. There's no difference. And maybe we say, but that's the Western world, right? We are different. Are we, are we really that different? Scripture says in the end times, people would have a form of godliness, but not the power thereof, not the inner reality of our faith. What are we pursuing for our hope, for comfort, for satisfaction? Is it consistent with what we profess to believe in? You know the story of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? Dr. Jekyll, a very timid man with lots of inhibitions in his life, afraid of this, afraid of that. He invents this potion, right? He takes this potion and he transforms to a wild man, Mr. Hyde, freed from all inhibitions. He does whatever he wants. And so every night, Dr. Jekyll will take this potion and he will transform. Until one day, to his horror, he realized that he didn't need to take that potion to transform to Mr. Hyde. What was inside finally came out. And so I asked, are we consistent with our profession? What are we pursuing in our lives that gives us satisfaction and hope that we desire to have? Because that is what we truly worship. The new covenant promise is that we have this new life. And we have this new life, we have to share this life because of the love of God not simply out of duty. Jeremiah 31, the context of the new covenant, it says, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. They shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when he went to find its rest. God gives them grace. 
the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. Even in the Old Testament, God is loving. Sometimes we have this impression, we think that, you know, in the Old Covenant, God is very judgy, full of wrath. But in the New Covenant, God is love. That's not right. God is consistently love. He draws the Israelite back to him. Verse 8, he says, Behold, I'm bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together. A great company, they will return here. God says, I'm going to bring you back from Babylon to this land. With weeping, they will come, and by supplication, I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters on a straight path in which they will not stumble. He will lead them directly back. It's for sure. It's a straight path. They will not stumble. He says, because I am the father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Ephraim is the biggest tribe of the northern kingdom. Basically, he's saying, Israel is my child. I am their father. You know, there was a rabbi, Rabbi Meyer, about AD 100. He meditated on Jeremiah 31 and then he told this story. He says there was a prince who left his father's home. Wasted all his wealth, became a beggar. And his father, the king, sent messengers to look for him. They found him and told him to go home. But the prince said, Tell my father I'm too ashamed to go home. The father sent another messenger and says, Why are you ashamed? You're still my son. I'm still your father. And that would never change. You see, Rabbi Meyer from Jeremiah 31 saw the love of God as a father for Israel that never changes. Now friends, does this story sound familiar? It should, because about 70 years before, a man called Jesus Christ told a similar story, right? The parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal son went off, became a beggar, had to eat pig's food, and then he realized that in his father's home, even the slaves have better food and say, I want to go home. Scripture tells us, so he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Why did the father see him from afar? Because he was waiting for him every day, looking out for him. What was the father thinking about? He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Father says, quickly bring the best robe. Give him the sandals, the ring, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life. Where do you think Jesus got this story from? He didn't pluck it out of the air. It is certainly based on the Old Testament. Perhaps it was from Jeremiah 31. Perhaps that was what was in the father's mind when he was looking out for his son, calling out to Israel, come home. I've extended to you my everlasting love. And so this idea of God in the Old Testament is very wrathful and New Testament is, is loving is wrong. Rather than God being distant and unfeeling, a more biblical understanding is that God's anger at sin exists in tension with His overwhelming love. The reason why God pronounced judgment and His wrath came upon Israel is because of their love, His love for them. The same passion, concern, passionate concern for humanity that causes God's anger is also the source of His tenacious, everlasting love that bursts out in joy when His children finally come home. God is our Father. 
What is it they were struggling with that we feel is a shame or guilt? Let's not turn away but turn to Him. You know Tao Chen, when he was struggling in his homosexual lifestyle, a friend invited him to church. He said, I'm such a dirty person. How can I go to a holy place? And his friend said, you know, as long as you depend on Jesus, you'll be clean. He was shocked. Then he says, you don't know what I have done. I cannot be clean. And even though he said that, you know, he was curious. So the Sunday he went to church. When he heard the pastor preached, he said, this was what I've been looking for, the Word of God. The emptiness of my life, what I've been pursuing to fill this void, the Word of God fills this. And so every Sunday, he will go to church to worship God and then he'll rush off after service to a gay swana and look for sex. He says, I'll look for three or four encounters that day. And this went on for a, a year. Until one day, he heard the pastor preach on the prodigal son. And he felt God speaking to him. Son, come home. His heart broke. He teared up. And he says, he will put God first and follow him. And to take God's word seriously, he wanted to know what the Bible said about homosexuality. And he studied it. And he said, you know, even though we feel like this is natural, I was born this way, but does it mean that it pleases God or is in line with God's will? Of course not. Look at the children who are born blind or lame. Is it God's will? Does it please God they are born this way? No. God's creation was perfect, but sin entered the creation and therefore we, we live in a fallen world and that is why we are like that today. And so it went on for several years. He grew, he served, you know, he, but he struggled until finally he walked out of this lifestyle. Today, he still has same-sex attraction, but he doesn't lead the homosexual lifestyle. He quit his job as a banker, went to seminary, and he is a professor and at a seminary, and he also serves in a church as a pastor. Two weeks ago, I had lunch with him because I intend to invite him to speak in August on this topic. So we exchanged our stories, and then he said, you know, since maybe there are some people who are really struggling in sin, you feel like you're in this tunnel and there's no light at the end of it. You're struggling in shame and guilt. I understand. For two and a half years, I was in that situation. I love God, but I was still sinning. I knew it was wrong, but I continued to indulge in the sin. Until gradually, I came to realize that the death of Jesus gives us freedom from the bondage of sin. And the Holy Spirit indwelling in us allows us to make a choice and the grace of God is more than enough. Friends, you realize what he just articulated? Those were the promises of the new covenant, right? God promised your, your sins are cleansed. How? By Jesus' death. The, the Holy Spirit indwells in us so that we can obey Him and we all, everyone from the least to the greatest have direct access to God because of the Holy Spirit, we can make a choice. And the everlasting love of God, the grace of God, sustains us. Living a victorious Christian life doesn't mean we no longer sin. It means that we know where to turn to when we sin. We know what we desire and what we love and we're drawn by God more than what we're drawn by our desires. If we have this new life, 
then I think our response is to share this life. Not just share this life, but share this message. And so today, we have to ask ourselves, what is causing me to, be, to stumble? What is holding me in bondage, in guilt and shame? It may not be something you're doing, not maybe your past, but we can let it go. We can find forgiveness and freedom because that's what the new covenant is all about. Share our life and share our message. The promises of the new covenant, and now let's look at the commandment of the new covenant. A covenant is how God administers His relationship with people. The first mention of the covenant is in Noah. Of course, we can argue that in Adam and Eve, it was a covenant, though it was not mentioned. But what God told Noah is exactly what He told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the world. Alright? How is this going to be fulfilled? Through Abraham. God promised him land, seed, blessing. In Moses, he talks about the land. And as new covenant believers, our land, our Canaan, is the new heavens and earth. In David, he deals with the seed. It's through the son of David who will be king that we will be saved. In the new covenant, it is about the blessing. The blessing of Abraham through whom all nations will be blessed. How is this all nations going to be blessed? That is through what God has promised. He says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse. Verse 14, In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, what blessing is this? What He promised to Abraham, that all nations will be blessed through Him, might come to the Gentiles, all the world, all nations, so that we would receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit through faith. These are the promises of the new covenant. So, if people ask you, you are a new covenant believer, what does that mean? That means you are a new life. We all have direct access to God because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise and he, later on, Paul would also say that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants as according to the promise. You and I, we are Abraham's descendants. All nations will be blessed through us. And so we are blessed to be a blessing. That's a good principle. But that doesn't just re, it's not just restricted to material blessing. You know that I'm blessed, I want to bless people more. That's a good principle. Blessed to be a blessing means we are blessed with the gospel. We are now part of God's family and we want all nations to be blessed. So we have to share this message. Every covenant there's a mediator, Moses, David, Jesus. Every covenant there's a sign the rainbow, circumcision, Sabbath, and the new covenant, baptism. Every covenant, there are some instructions, commandments. The commandment of the new covenant, I would say then, is the Great Commission. Where Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. Now think about this. What is this new commission, Great Commission all about? Through the gospel, we become disciples. We are remade. The image of God on us that has been marred by sin, is being restored through the gospel. When all nations become disciples, we fill God's creation with people remade in His image and is filled with His glory. And that is exactly what God told Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply doesn't mean you just make babies, okay? The whole idea of mankind there is we are people who bear the image of God and when we fill the world with people bearing the image of God by multiplying and being fruitful, we fill the world with people made in the image of God. We fill the world with glory. 
of God. He repeats this in Noah. And he says this again in the Great Commission. So friends, from the beginning of time to the end of time, God is only doing one thing. One thing and one thing only. Redeeming His creation. You know, the question we have to ask is, how many things are we doing? And this has been a question I've been repeating for the last four months, right? God is only doing one thing. How many things are we doing? How many purposes and agendas do we have? Are we willing to let God use our lives to share this message? Years ago, a brother came to talk to me about going to seminary. Uh, his parents were from China, but he was born in the US. And typically, family like this, you know, they have good results, good job, and they lead the American dream, okay? So he was a successful radiologist in his 40s, married with children, living a good life. So I asked him, you know, I said, why do you want to go to seminary? He says, you know, I grew up in church. I was a lukewarm believer until one day, in the OR, one of my patients died. For 15 minutes, he didn't have any brainwave or heartbeat. And then he came back to life. I talked to him later and found, he described what he saw in the 15 minutes and I realized it's very similar to what the Bible tells us about heaven. So I got curious. I went to look at all my patients who have this sort of experience and went to talk to them. And I realized they all have similar experiences. And I've come to see that heaven is real. And if heaven is real, then what am I doing in my life? What am I pursuing? If heaven is real, then hell is real. Then I must share this message. Now, firstly, I have to tell you, okay, I'm very skeptical about this sort of die and wake up story, okay? But he's a doctor, so I thought I better keep quiet and just listen. It was real for him. His life changed dramatically. People around him thought he was crazy, including his own wife. He said, once I attended my daughter's baptism, I came into the sanctuary and I prayed. I felt this burden. I said, pray that God used me to be a blessing to someone today. So I decided to sit near the front to take pictures. You know, we usually have our own seats in church, right? This corner or that corner, you know. So when I see the corner not there, I know you're not here. And then one day we come to church, or new friends sit in our seats. I was like, what you? How dare you? Now, of course, we won't say it, right? But in our hearts, we, wow, what like that? Now, he decided to sit a different place, right? Never sat there. And then there was a new friend beside him, older couple and a young lady. Okay, so being a good Christian, after that, he decided to talk to them. No, she was studying in the US, uh, just graduated. So her parents came from China uh, to attend her graduation. So as they chit-chat, suddenly she asked him, she says, do you know a brain surgeon? He asked why. He says, oh, my dad, before he came out, he had a brain MRI and they found a tumour. He has brain cancer. So we thought maybe we can get a second opinion. And this man said, I'm not a brain surgeon, but I'm a radiologist. Every day I stare at hundreds of MRIs and the, the young lady yelped. She says, oh, then you can help me. And from her back, she pulled out her MRI scan. I mean, come on, how many of us will come for a worship service and bring our MRI scan? And so he looked at it and says, doesn't look right. Anyway, long story short, okay, because he talked for three hours, three to four hours, and I, I remember because I was waiting for him to finish to eat my meal, you know. And he says, long story short, basically, they did a follow-up and realized that it was not a tumor. He had no cancer. He shared the gospel and the parents accepted Christ. And then at the end of the night, he told me, he said, if we are serious about God using our lives, He will do it. If God is only doing one thing throughout history, 
Friends, how many things are we doing? How many agendas do you have for your own life? Are you willing to say, God, use me in whatever I'm doing right now. Let God's kingdom be the main thing and the one thing. As a student, as a homekeeper, looking after your grandchildren, as a worker, our focus is God's kingdom because that's the one thing that will last. Not long ago, I have a friend, old friend, early 50s, found out that he had late-stage pancreatic cancer. Only have three to four weeks to live. You know, they are Malaysians, work hard. And their dream is to one day go back to Malaysia, buy a nice place and retire. But you know, that's not going to happen now. Friends, our life, our health can be taken away in an instant. What are we doing with this life? Because one day we have to give an account to God. What are you going to say? Last week, I went for a Baptist pastor retreat. Usually, I go for this retreat to make new friends, so I will sign up for a double room without a roommate, you know, hoping that they don't give me someone who snores so I cannot sleep. But anyway, the person ended up my roommate was the same person uh, that I had four years ago, you know, the last time we had it before COVID. So it's like, oh, I haven't seen you in four years, you know, and so I tried to break the awkwardness, lying in bed, being relaxed, trying to chit-chat with him, have small talk, right? So I asked him, hey, how do you survive COVID? I shouldn't have asked that question because suddenly the atmosphere turned so tensed. He was very serious and he said, I asked God why I didn't die. Then he said, you know, I, I served at a very poor place in the Philippines. And throughout the whole city, many of my co-workers died. You know, this week I was talking to this pastor. Next week I hear he has COVID. A few weeks later, he died. Talked to my church elder today. The next day I heard he has COVID. A week later, he was dead. To the extent I asked God, why is it not me who died? You know, when I heard that, I had a lump in my throat. I thought I never asked that question during COVID. Yes, there were deaths in Singapore. Yes, it was scary. But perhaps because I'm not a frontline worker and it was during that time I found that I was actually non-essential. <laughs> Throughout the whole COVID period, I was never really fearful. Do we take it for granted that we are alive today? I never asked, why is it not me who got cancer? Why is it not me who died from COVID? How about you? Today, you are here. I'm here. It's not by coincidence. God gave us life, but what are we doing with that life? If God is only doing one thing throughout time and history, what are we doing with the life that we have? Let's pray. Let's take this time to respond to the Lord in prayer. To say, yes, God, this is my life. I know, I don't take it for granted. And I'm still breathing today for a reason. And one day when I see you face to face, I want to be able to give an account and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant.
Maybe church, let us stand. Let's give our lives as an offering for the cause of Christ.